0: In the meantime, just head over to Patreon.com slash The Writer It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's Patreon.com slash The Help us start something special.
1: Hey, Jared Morris here. If you know anything about Rainmaker Digital and Copyblogger, you may know that we produce incredible live events. Well, some would say that we produce incredible live events as an excuse to throw great parties, but that's another story. We've got another one coming up this October in Denver. It's called Digital Commerce Summit, and it is entirely focused on giving you the smartest ways to create and sell digital products and services. You can find out more and get a killer early bird price on your tickets at rainmaker.fm slash summit. That's rainmaker.fm slash summit. We'll be talking about Digital Commerce Summit in more detail as it gets closer. But for now, I'd like to let a few attendees from our past events speak for us. For me, it's just hearing from the experts. I mean, this is my first industry event, so it's awesome to learn new stuff and also get confirmation that we're not doing it completely wrong where I work.
0: The best part of the conference for me is being able to mingle with people and realize that you have connections with everyone here. It feels like LinkedIn Live. I also love the parties after each day, being able to talk to the speakers, talk to other people over here for the first time, people who've been here
1: before. I think the best part of the conference for me is understanding
0: how I can service my customers a little more easily, seeing all the different facets and components of various enterprises then helps them pick the best
1: tools. Hey, we agree. One of the biggest reasons we host a conference every year is so that we can learn how to service our customers, people like you, more easily. And here are just a few more words from folks who have come to our past live events.
0: It's really fun. I think it's a great mix of beginner information and advanced information, so I'm really learning a lot and having a lot of fun.
1: Conference is great, especially because it's a single track conference where you don't get distracted by like, which session should I go to and am I missing something? I mean, the training and everything, the speakers have been awesome, but I think the coolest aspect for me has been connecting with both people who are putting it on and then the other attendees. So that's it for now. There's a lot more to come on Digital Commerce Summit, and I really hope to see you there in October. Again, to get all the details and the very best deal on tickets, head over to rainmaker.fm slash summit. That's rainmaker.fm slash summit.
0: These are the Writer Files, a tour of the habits, habitats, and brains of working writers, from online content creators to fictionists, journalists, entrepreneurs, and beyond. I'm your host, Calvin Reed, writer, podcaster, and media file. And each week, we'll discover how great writers keep the ink flowing, the cursor moving, and avoid writer's block. New York Times bestselling author and co-founder of Wired Magazine, Kevin Kelly, stopped by the show to chat with me this week about his journey from traveled journalist to famed futurist. Mr. Kelly's storied and winding career has taken him around the world in search of visions of the new digital frontier. Kevin's a renowned TED speaker and author of multiple bestsellers, including his latest, The Inevitable, understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. And it's a title that offers an optimistic roadmap of how new technologies will shape humanity. Dubbed the most interesting man in the world by Tim Ferriss, Mr. Kelly began writing on the internet near its inception and never looked back, taking gigs, including editor for the Whole Earth Review, and presently, senior maverick at Wired Magazine, a magazine that he co-founded in 1993 and where he served as its executive editor until 1999. Join us for this two-part interview. And if you're a fan of the show, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews and to help other writers find us. In part one of this file, Kevin and I discuss how an amateur photographer became a best-selling author and digital visionary, the future of artificial intelligence, how a technologist keeps his finger on the pulse of the future, why you should write to understand your ideas and the importance of the incubation phase for writers. All right, we are rolling. The very special guest on the podcast today, Mr. Kevin Kelly. Thank you so much for dropping by to talk to us about your process as a writer.
2: It's uh, my pleasure and privilege. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> well, I understand you're doing the rounds and you're just um, out there and and uh, talking about this fantastic new book, The Inevitable.
2: Well, actually I'm more like the sun to the center because um the way we're doing podcasts is I'm here sitting in my studio and everyone's coming to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's uh it's gotta be kinda nice to not have to travel at least. Yeah.
2: For this part of the journey. So it's the it's the future, man.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um I want to just mention that I mean you are uh, having quite a bit of success so far um, with the new one, and it is titled *The Inevitable: Understanding the Twelve Technological Forces That Will Shape Our World*. Um, it's it's good stuff and it's heady, but uh, it's already hitting New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestsellers lists, and you've written a lot of other stuff. You've, you're an author, of many many books. Um, you've been a travel journalist, I understand. Um, an editor of um, a handful of important publications, including the Whole Earth Review, way back, and uh, co-founder and now senior maverick of Wired magazine. That's pretty cool. And lots of lots of other stuff in between. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about your origins and how you kind of went from um, those early days of maybe not knowing you were going to be a writer to today being a, a best-selling author.
2: Yeah, I I definitely um, did not identify or even dream of being a writer. That was not something that I was aiming for. I um, actually started off as a photographer, and I still think very visually in in those terms. Um, And I came to writing actually online i learned to write online on the very early bulletin boards in the early 80s yeah and i i discovered that i had a telegraphic style that was very suited for online discourse and um i was not attempting to write i was just attempting to communicate just you know like email or postings we we would now think of them as kind of uh, I don't know, even um, comments, uh, blog postings, that kind of stuff. And that's where I started. And it wasn't even thinking of it as writing then. It was just communicating. Mm-hmm. My natural instincts are not actually in writing, but more in editing. Editing in not the line editing, copy editing, but more editing in terms of packaging ideas, mm-hmm. particularly packaging ideas that had a visual component a diagram picture um, charts you know just the graphic design of it of the whole thing yeah. and um, so so that kind of led me to magazines where I, and I was a magazine junkie growing up uh, as a kid in part because my dad actually worked for time time life company oh cool and so every week he brought home. Every Monday he brought home this stack of magazines, and I had been reading time and Fortune magazines since I was the age of ten and all the others at that time this week included you know sports Illustrated Money magazine life magazine mm-hmm. and um I read them all and i and I loved them and so i I kind of um thought in those terms and um, later, you know, started working on magazines and, um, not so much in the writing department, but more in the editing, what we might, you know, call these days curation. I was curating articles. And so, um, that's my, um, you know, I, I wrote out of desperation, basically the, <laughs> the, the short, the short answer is, is I would try to make assignments, try to get other people to write, have ideas, have other people try to write them and I would go through and and ideas that I tried to get other people to write for years and then kept coming back as um, something that no one wanted to do and I would try to kill off the idea in my own mind but it would come back and I couldn't get someone to write it so those are the ideas that I couldn't give away that (laughs) I would eventually end up writing myself and that was um, there were two lessons in that one was I, I realized that you know I, I could write if I had to, um, but secondly, the, the pieces that I did write that way were my were the best ones because no one else could write them, and so there was this discovery that um, what I really want to do was to do things that only I could do, and part of that was part of that process, which I still adhere to today, is to talk about what I'm thinking about doing, to talk about uh, what I am doing, in the hopes of actually someone else either stealing the idea and doing it. Before me or else tell me that they're already working on it or that it has already been done, which is always a great relief because I don't really want to have to do it. I only want to do stuff that no <laughs> one else can do.
0: Cool. Cool. Yeah. I like that uh, a lot. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and right on. So, I mean, you just had this very interesting circuitous um, route to where you are today. And, uh, you know, you're a world traveler and a a TED speaker and and, uh, kind of a digital visionary, I guess, would be. Um, one term to use. Um, where, where can we find, where can listeners find the book you're writing out there? I mean, I know there's a lot.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I have a website and a early um, domain name. So it's my initials, kk.org. And um, I post most of the stuff there. A lot of, for instance, a lot of this book, a lot of my previous book was first written as blog posts and then rewritten for the book. Um, There's a lot of stuff there on the website that has not been published elsewhere, Um, like 1,000 True Fans, which people um, still enjoy. (laughs) And so um, there's that. There's um, links to the other site that I'm still active with, with Mark Froninfelder, the founder of Boing Boing, who has actually worked with me at Wired. And we run cool tools Yes, which is which is a site that recommends and reviews one cool tool in the broadest sense of something handy um, every day, yeah. every week, every weekday for the past um, thirteen, no, sixteen years, something crazy. <laughs> yeah, I love that and, site. And um, there's other stuff there. I did a graphic novel with a bunch of people from Pixar and ILM. Uh, we spent eleven years on it. It's this massive, immense. 500-page oversized book that's about angels and robots and trying to say what would happen if robots had souls. And um, so I I have a site that reviews the best documentaries. I have um, my photography site, which um, is probably closest to my heart because it's a total compulsion. (laughs) There's no reason why I should be spending so much time still today in Asia, photographing the disappearing traditions. I do it because I have to. And um, all those kinds of things are there. Uh, Books, my translations of the various editions are also available. Probably other stuff I'm forgetting about right now. Oh, yes, (laughs) Street Use was another blog I ran. I haven't updated it forever. But I was collecting the uh, ways in which people would make Uh, homegrown adaptions or modifications to technology, you know, like weird vehicles in China Uh or kind of uh, just odd things, prison, people, how they made technology in prison. There was just really cool stuff (laughs) that I just um, neglected because of um, doing other stuff. But that's actually pertinent to this book, The Inevitable, because... Part of what I look at in trying to see where technology is going is looking at where it is evolving unsupervised. It's kind of like, if you want to see the true behavior of something, look at whether or not being supervised, and you can see what's really happening. And so technology is just being misused, abused, or unsupervised, like with outlaws or mm-hmm. or the kids or the street. Um is one way f- that I use to kind of see where it wants to kind of go to, where it's tending, where it's tending to go to, beyond what the inventors think it should do. Yeah. So, so the street use, so street technology, as Gibson, Bill Gibson says, the street has its own use. I think that's, um, to me, a very, very valuable place to look to see what technology wants. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've heard you talk about slang um, as kind of being a a marker for that um, as well. So I think you're kind of a a word nerd as well. I know in the uh, the opening of uh, uh, what technology wants, you kind of talk about the origins of the word technology, which I thought was cool. um,
2: Kind of dating back to Aristotle's rhetoric. Right. right. Um, And it's actually, it was kind of a word, by the way, not really used and kind of re remade in the 1820s or something. Yeah. It had been neglected for all that time. So it took us a long time to even recognize technology in our lives, which seems kind of strange to us now. But that's how things happen. I think I'm sure there's, well, I, I know that um, to me, one of the big things coming, I mean, big, big on the level like the invention of, printing industrial revolution big as is the artificial intelligence stuff that's coming in there is we're we're going to look back and realize that we were so ignorant about (laughs) intelligence because intelligence is not a single thing there's there's going to be we'll realize that there's all these different mm, varieties nodes styles species of thinking and um Right now, we kind of use one word for we talk about intelligence, and um, we're actually meaning probably five or six or ten or a thousand different things, um, and we lack the conceptual tools, the the data, the vocabulary to to talk about it in any other uh, level of precision. Right now, that. I would expect in 20 years from now that we'll be much better informed and we'll have a whole new lingo for talking about the varieties of, of smartness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you get into that in your book um, and you talk about cognifying and, and um, you know, kind of in, in layman's terms, that's, that's the AI piece. Is that right?
2: Correct. That's a, it's <laughs> my, it's my coinage. For uh, cogn- cognifying is making things smarter. And, and it's because we don't have other good English words for that. We don't call it smartifying or <laughs> smarting or something. So I use cognifying to make, to make smarter. I wish we did use smartifying. Um, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I think that would be a good do- domain. Someone needs to pick that up now. Uh, <laughs> so um, so what are you working on now? Are you working on a book about AI? It sounds like that's where
2: most of your interest lies at the moment. Um, or are you working on something different? I'm not on AI. Um, th- that's a full-time beat for somebody. Yeah. And there are there are increasing numbers of people. Um, and by the way, just, just – I'll answer the question, but there was a nice aside that um, I make the analogy in the book of um, of the way that um, artificial energy was distributed on a grid with electricity to um, everybody, all their homes, factories, farmsteads. Yeah. And so anybody could purchase electricity, artificial power, and you'd have this industrial revolution where you take X and add electricity and you'd have – an electric pump, say, you take a pump and make it manual pump and make it electric and you have a, a, a electric pump. And that would be, and you'd multiply that by thousands of times and you'd have the industrial revolution. And now we're going to do the same thing with um, AI, artificial smartness, which will um, be sold over a grid called the cloud. And anybody who wanted to buy mm, AI will buy it like they would buy electricity off of the grid as a commodity utility. And then you would have uh, Apply the AI that you buy to anything, any X, and you would take the electric pump and then and you would cognify it. So everything we electrified, we would cognify. And what was interesting it was, um, uh, you know, 150 years ago, when electricity was coming onto the grid, it was so complicated and dangerous and mysterious that um, they had v- vice presidents of electricity in companies, the person in charge of electrifying things <laughs> and i think we're going to have vps of um ai vps of machine learning whatever it is yeah. for the foreseeable future until it becomes boring and and standard and then we'll we'll, we'll drop it so so the um there, there there will be this period where where um there'll be specialists in you know in bringing ai to it just like we had vps of electricity cool so um Never forgotten what your question was. Was <laughs> what's your ne- what's your uh, most next, recent project? <laughs> the next thing I'm working on is yeah. um, uh, with my assistant uh, researcher uh, Camille. We are putting together, collecting. Or she's mostly doing the collecting of all the existing long-term forecasts in all the different domains. You know, from energy, transportation, food, sports furnishings whatever it is we're looking yeah. at anybody who's producing a long-term forecast and then uh, my intention is to integrate those into a kind of cohesive plausible future for say 2050 or something about uh-huh. then to, to build a world based on these official forecasts which are generally always wrong <laughs> but the idea is that like a lot of complex systems you can take a lot of unreliable parts, and you make something reliable. So the, the so the magic of complex systems is that you can make things more reliable than the parts. They're, I mean, they're literally, the old saw about the sum being greater than the parts is actually true. So you could take neurons and brains are kind of like they're they're that way. They're 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 much more as a whole reliable than the individual parts are. And um, beehives and other kinds of things exhibit the same kind of phenomenon. So the idea is if we took these uh, forecasts, which independently are not very reliable, mm-hmm. but can somehow integrate them into a system so that they're informing each other, that there might be a way to make it more reliable and useful. And so the idea is just to uh, try to make a comprehensive scenario mm-hmm. Of the of the future that might prove useful to people in some capacity, and so that's it's an experiment; it could fail. <laughs> that's that's the beauty of it, um, and that's sort of what we're working on right now. Sounds really cool. It sounds um, big, like a
0: lot of data. So you have a researcher. Sounds like uh, I would like to dig into your productivity a little bit and the sure. writing the writing process itself. So it sounds like you revealed that you, that you're getting a lot of the number crunching. And the research done, um, mm. you have someone helping you do that, but mm. there's still probably quite a bit that you have to crunch down yourself or kind of turn over in your in your mind um, and remix, et cetera. Um, so, are you spending a certain amount of time just reading every day, or
2: I try to, I try to, um, you know, as I said, I'm a magazine junkie, and so my 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 my, my tendency is to read magazines and journals and some papers. I, I would like to read more books. I'm surrounded by a two-story library right now. <laughs> I would like to um, uh, dedicate my, more of my time to reading books, but, I, but um, what happens is that there's so many magazine articles to read. Uh-huh. They seem to be a little bit more current and faster paced that, I, that, I, that they tend to push out my book reading time. Sure. Um, I listen to a lot of books on tape, but most of that, or at least half of that, is fiction. That's how I get my fiction done. How oh, cool. That even has been somewhat eroded by my interest in podcasts. So a lot of the Audible book time is now going to podcasts, which I also am a big fan of. And so I, I do spend a lot of time reading, and that's one of the my privileges and blessings is that I – do have the ability to make time for that, and um, it's that's an extremely important part of my day. Yeah. Um. So so the input is is reading papers and articles. Yeah. And um, the other thing is uh, trying to talk to people on the phone, which is to me like the second most important way I get. What I get, which is actually in conversation, because um, people just tell you things in a. I mean, it's it's a very high signal to noise ratio (laughs) of of input. It's high quality. Generally, people are just kind of they're not going to. I don't know. They they can be more direct in what they tell you. The conversation can guide it to the kind of information I'm looking for very fast. And it's a very effective way to, to learn something. Yeah.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech.
0: Well, that's cool. And so it sounds like you've got a, a, a system down. It's helping you kind of keep your finger in the pulse. So then before you kind of launch into like a A bigger project I mean do you have to psych yourself up to sit down to write Um, are you uh, like going through periods of where you're just putting input and then you you know kind of spit out a big chunk of a book or you know how do you how do you kind of crack your knuckles and get going
2: then so I I have had different phases as I said I don't think of myself as as a writer I don't feel like I have to write every day just on a normal Day I do you know the email thing when I'm writing so so, so I write to 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 figure out what I'm thinking yeah. and so um, when I have that problem of um, trying to do that then I will um, start writing and I'll kind of like I kind of commit to a writing period until I'm done. Hmm. Then I'm writing a lot. You know, I try to do like whatever it is, the 500 words or something, just to, to get stuff down. Because for me, the killer thing is that first draft. That's just the hardest thing for me to do. And um, when I was doing the books, uh, the last two books, I basically was trying to po- write and post something every day as a kind of incentive. Hmm. I didn't always make it, but I did a lot in, in, in that period. And um, both of the last two books came from that from that writing the, you know, the the early parts of it. Um, when I'm doing a big piece for wired, um, which is sort of the, I do about one a year mm-hmm. there. It's, um, a lot of, um, research and a lot of interviews, yeah. um, a lot of reading, calling, trying to talk to people and I'm making notes and I'm I'm kind of writing up notes, which I will then kind of go through to extract out stuff. So so that's a several-step process where I'm heavily, intensively doing the research. And Camille's doing other research. I'm, you know, like, finding this. Uh, what about that? There must be some paper on this. How about uh, this um, question? And that's all kind of coming together, and I'm trying to process it. And I'm writing there mostly um, – Notes are kind of like things I don't want to forget, but the hard part of trying to have an idea um, generally comes out where where I'm just you know where I try to write down stuff in order to have an idea because I don't have an idea and then try to write it I write it to have an idea and um, so that means like writing stuff that's not going to be used but I'm just I have to just kind of go through that process yeah yeah. So um, that is that's painful. I call it painful because <laughs> when I'm writing, it's usually like it doesn't, it isn't very good. It's, it's like I, I know that I'm not saying anything new. It's, it's painful in the sense that it's, that it, it feels like I'm inadequate. It feels like that I'm not doing anything. It's, it's the usual kinds of fears that artists have, which is like, you know, I, I'm not very good at this. And so, um, it, it takes um, persevering through that where you begin to again for me anyway pick out the stuff that does work and you kind of isolate it and to try to recombine it and then you know you're going through and so that's just to make an article and then if you're making it at a book you have to kind of go through that whole thing again at a different level <laughs> um, and you have to have bigger ideas to connect all those little ideas together. So it takes, yeah, it takes several cycles, and and, and during during that period um, of writing, I'm, um, you know, not I'm a slow writer and I'm a slow typer, and um, I won't get very far. But I will spend a lot of time just sort of staring at mm-hmm. the screen, staring at <laughs> the window, because it's, it's for me it's a type of thinking. It's like, yeah, or or I will pace where I'm trying to think like what uh you know what do i think I, I don't know so it's 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 a type of thinking and it's it's not a literary in that sense i i work with liter i work with people who are real writers like like neil stevenson he 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 writes every day he loves to write he um lives to write he just writes like you would speak it just comes out of him that's not me. Um, I write under uh, out of desperation as, as a way of thinking. It's very slow. I don't generate very many words. Yeah. And I do it reluctantly.
0: <laughs> That's funny you say that. Um, I know that a lot of writers and best-selling authors say the same thing. They don't like to write. They would rather be reading. but uh, And yet they have these storied uh, publishing pasts and, and get the words down there. But it, yeah, what, I mean what you're talking about is kind of that the kind of the classic, you know, creative process where you're preparing all the, you know, doing the research, getting all this stuff together and then you need that kind of incubation phase to get that like aha moment of of an idea. Thanks so much for joining me for this half of a tour through the writer's process. If you enjoy the Writer Files podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review on iTunes to help other writers find us. For more episodes, or to just leave a comment or a question, you can drop by writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me on Twitter, at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.